0: Our scripture reading today is taken from Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 15. So turn, please, together in your uh, scripture to Galatians chapter uh, 3, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. There is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Almighty Heavenly Father, bless this word to our hearts, to our minds, to our spirits. We ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We all have had and we all will have both successes and failures, successes uh, and sometimes acceptance in our lives. We will all have trials and discouragement in our lives. And all of us, most of us here have experienced that uh, apart (laughs) Apart from the one young person whom I heard confessing his sins verbally during the silent time of confession. (laughs) I think his sin was that he was confessing it verbally, out loud. (laughs) But it's a minor. It's okay. Mother, worry not. Whoever, whichever mother this would be. (laughs) You know, um, and, and this is... I shouldn't possibly take an aside here, but sometimes mothers worry too much about their kids making noise in church. Don't ever worry about that. All the rest of us enjoy hearing it. We're just so glad to have the children here. That's a great blessing, and their heads shaking. They're like this now. Um, let it be. That's a wondrous, a wondrous thing to have those children. In all things, getting back to what we're here for at this moment, in all things, remember this. We are Abraham's heirs. We are Yahweh's children. We have an internal inheritance, a place in the kingdom of God. That's ours. We'll look at this scripture in three sections, as I usually do. An irrevocable covenant question why then the law, because that's what Paul does, and then what I call the great escape. So let's look first at the irrevocable covenant. That's a word we don't often use, irrevocable. It means it can't be revoked. It can't be taken back. It's there. It's permanent. It's forever. It's eternal. Paul in verse 15 makes two points. First, he calls the Galatians brothers. Remember, these are people he's writing to to correct them based on their mistakes. But he calls them brothers. This shows that his love for them is undiminished. In spite of their foolishness, he still loves them. And he recognizes that their salvation is real in spite of their foolishness. Paul's main point then comes, the covenant with Abraham is irrevocable. It cannot be revoked. It cannot be changed. First, he says, even man-made covenants are not annulled later. Now, he's talking about covenants such as the will that a man makes so that when he dies, the things that he owns will go to his loved ones and help provide and care for them. So, that's the kind of covenant he's talking about here. The promise is to Abraham, and it's from God, and it will not change. But it is also a promise to Abraham's offspring, singular, and that is Christ, and that is Christ. And, you know, I cannot help. Stopping and saying that we are the body of Christ. So a promise to Christ is a promise to us. Praise God. Praise God. We might ask then, what is a covenant? Get this and get this clearly. A covenant is one person's promise. Well, we could say three persons' promise as long as we're talking about God in three persons, but it's a promise from one. It's not like a contract. A, a contract, you know, I might say, um, Bob, will you build me a garage? And if you build me a garage, then I will pay you uh, $2,300.72. Probably not enough for building a garage. But then later I might say, Bob, I saw that garage that you built for Paige. I don't want you to build me a garage anymore. Now, I have no idea if Bob could or could not build a garage uh, or whether I would or would not break the contract because of a garage that he had built that wasn't all that good. But I know that God has made a covenant through Abraham that is irrevocable, that is a wonderful covenant, and I want that covenant, and I want to be part of that. And praise God, we are part of that as we are in Christ. So it's a one-person promise, not a two-party contract. It's Yahweh's promise for Abraham's singular offspring. One, he makes that point, that the offspring is singular and that it is Christ. Well, someone might object, you know, seed or offspring, and the word in the Hebrew is seed, uh, can be either singular or plural, which is true. It can be either one. But we need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Consider Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And then it goes on, He, that's singular, shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel, singular, Scripture with Scripture. We know that the serpent is a person, Satan. And we know that the offspring is a person, Christ our Lord. And so we have uh, this teaching from Paul who knew his Scripture uh, and his language both very, very thoroughly. I wish I knew Hebrew as Paul knew Hebrew, but I do not. Uh, it's not easy to learn. And if I did know modern Hebrew, that wouldn't necessarily give me his knowledge of the Hebrew of Scripture. But Paul did know. And Paul's point is that salvation is not promised to the physical offspring of Abraham. It is promised to those with faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. Justification is by faith. Now think about this a minute. There are three basic viewpoints among the um, God-believing religions of our world today. And I say God-believing because they speak of God. Uh, Buddhists do not. Other religions do not. But the Jewish The relationship is primarily physical. Yes, you can be converted into Judaism, but it's primarily those who are the physical descendants of Israel. And the Muslim religion, primarily physical. Again, you can be converted into, but it is primarily to the descendants of Ishmael. But the Christian faith, deals with spiritual descendants, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. There's no question of being born a Christian by physical birth. We pray that our children will become strong Christians, and often they do as we nurture them and teach them and as they grow. But the real issue is the spirit entering into their hearts. Now, objection that might be made to this was not the promise that Abraham's descendants would inherit the physical land of Canaan. Well, yes, it was, and they did inherit the physical land of Canaan. But Abraham went and lived in the promised land, the land promised to him and his descendants, and he lived there as a foreigner and as an exile not as the one who owned the land. So consider Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 16 say this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers, and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Think of that last statement. God is not ashamed to be called my God. I look at myself and I think, why not? He ought to be ashamed. I mean, I'm not telling him to be ashamed. (laughs) But, wondrous reality that he is not ashamed to be our God. In spite of our failures, in spite of our weaknesses, he takes pride in being our God. That's wonderful. So in this passage from Hebrew, the earthly land of promise is just a type, a picture of a better country that is yet to come. And in verses 8 to 9, the the physical type is like living in a foreign land. Now, you know, here in America, uh, we tend to be proud of our country. And that's not a bad thing, necessarily. I want to be proud of my country. Sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I am more than others. But this is not ultimately my country. (laughs) It's where God has me living now. The country that is to come is a better country that he has planned for me. And it will come with the return of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the remaking of this creation of God's. So then, verse 10, the people mentioned in Hebrews, were're looking for that better land. and so we should need to we need to be doing that too. We have to be active and involved in the land where we are and caring for people and taking care of others, but we also need to be looking for the better land that's yet to come. Uh, these died in faith, it said, not having received the promise. To some extent that's still true for us. We die in faith, not having fully, Received the promise. But you notice I changed that a little bit. I said not having fully received the promise because we have partially received the fr- promise, have we not? We know Christ. We know that He has come the first time. He has not returned the second time yet. And what that time will be, we don't know. Scripture tells us we have no way of knowing. But we have received the promise in part. Because we have received Christ. So they acknowledged, and we should acknowledge, that we are strangers and exiles. Uh, They desired a better country, and we should be desiring a better country. So John chapter 8, verses 56 to 58, says something rather startling. They said to Jesus, Your father Abraham... Rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus said that. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old. And have you seen Abraham? Who, of course, had died long before. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, Amen, amen, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. What in the world does a saying like that even mean? Before Abraham was, I am. John uses the phrase, I am, In Jesus' lips again and again and again. And that is no mistake. I am is the translation of Yahweh. And that's why they crucified him. For blasphemy. Because using that phrase was claiming to be God. And that's exactly what he was saying here. Had he seen Abraham... Yes, indeed, he had seen Abraham. He had seen Adam and Eve, much less Abraham, before Abraham was, I am. Well, what about the law? Why then the law? The law, he says in verses 17 and 18, post-dated the promise. The promise came first. The law does not alter or change the promise. It is not based. The covenant of Genesis chapter 12, 1 and 2, which is a primary statement of the Abrahamic covenant, is based on Yahweh's promise, and it is not based on the law which comes after it. So then the question, why then the law? He begins to talk about this in verse 19. The issue is, since the promise was made, was that not enough? Was that not sufficient? Why the law? What's the need here? The answer is that law exists to deal judicially with sin, judicially with transgressions. It serves as a restraint on evil actions. And boy, we can see that in America today. Anyone who can't see The law dealing as a restraint on evil actions uh, has missed a lot of things because we've had places in this country where the district attorneys are not doing their jobs. We know about that. And because they're not doing their jobs, the law does not act as a restraint. And because it is not acting as a restraint, terrible things happen. And that ought not to be, and we're just talking about the laws of the United States or of uh, Oregon or Washington or some other state or, or, or location. So in God's justice, under God's law, the same thing is true. The law exists to serve as a restraint. It exists to awaken a sense of guilt and need. What a wonderful thing to have a sense of guilt. To do something wrong is not right. But when you do something wrong, if you have a sense of guilt, God has granted you a conscience. God has granted you a sense of shame. That's a wonderful gift. We need that. People in our country need that. Too few have that. And and many do. I think the majority do. But there are many that do not. The law points to sin. It cannot remove sin. Removal requires judicial process. If you steal $5,000 worth of stuff, and you're caught, and you're taken to court, and you're convicted, you are then sent to prison to pay, so far as that is possible, for your guilt. So the law is, is given that our debt might be eliminated by judicial process. What is that judicial process? When did that happen? What was it like? The judicial process occurred on the cross when Jesus died for our sins. And I emphasize, as I have emphasized before, that he did not simply die on the cross to forgive our sins. That's only the first step. The judicial process involves cleansing us from all unrighteousness. John 1, 9, chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the connection with Leviticus, the gospel of the Old Testament. That's the connection that God is making all through the scripture, that we need to be clean enough to stand before him. And that law is, can only uh, deal with this when we come to judicial process. And praise God, the judicial process was carried out upon the cross on which Jesus died. And that's why I'm clean enough to stand before God. Because apart from that, I am not. But because of that, I am. Now the offspring has come, has not the, is not the law abolished? Matthew chapter 5 talks about that. Jesus then says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh Uh-oh, Jesus just said, unless my righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. But it does. How does it exceed the scribes and the Pharisees? Because of Jesus' death to pay for my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. You see what's happening here? That's so important. That's so important. And the law still applies for us in our daily lives. We often fail to fulfill it. And what is the law? What did Jesus say? Rabbi, what is the first and great commandment? You've heard this over and over, and it's good to hear it again. The first and great commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind. And a second is like it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That means even that neighbor that I really don't like, who's always giving me trouble. I have to love him. He may not love me. Probably doesn't. I mean, I have some pretty good neighbors, so I'm not talking about my neighbors. But you I could have a neighbor that doesn't love me. For sure. And you all could, too. And I don't know if you do or do not but you've got to love him or her. And what does it mean to love somebody? I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a kind of a funny story. We had a new student come to school, beginning of second semester, and she was having physical problems. And because of that, She was out of school quite a bit and then back in school and found herself very sleepy in class and so forth. And at one point I called her up and I talked to her. And I said, you know, I love you, but this is a hard thing to say. I know you're having physical problems and I know they haven't gone away and the doctors don't know what to do, but somehow you're going to have to just live through them. And manage to perform and to do things in spite of them. You know, in life, that's sometimes the way that we have things that come. I've got a granddaughter who has continual migraine. I mean, continual. Sometimes worse, sometimes not as bad. And she went home and she told her father it was kind of creepy. Do you know why she told her father it was kind of creepy? Because I said, I love you. <laughs> And she'd just come from a public school where to say I love you was a whole different ballgame. To love somebody is to care enough about them to do things for them. First Corinthians 13 is the only definition of love in writing that I know of anywhere in all of the world's philosophy. Love is patient and kind. Love does not you know, harbor grudges. That's not the right wording at that point. I can't recite it all. But you know the passage, it's used at weddings all the time. But it's not about weddings, it's about your life and mine, our daily lives. When it says, love your neighbor as yourself, care for him, do things for him, help him, any way you can, or her, as the case may be. This we're called, this we're called to do. So, the law has its purpose and it has its place. And it will not pass away. And Jesus spoke of these two laws, and he said of these two, on these two laws, hang all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets. I don't even have the right page here, but you get the idea. And it's all, all there in those two. If you fulfill those two, you'll fulfill everything. The offspring, however, has come. And he said on the cross, it is finished. But it's not all finished yet. He has yet to return. And he'll say it is finished again. Well, why did he say it was finished on the cross? It wasn't really finished. Because he had finished the judicial process so that we could be cleansed of all unrighteousness and come to God through Christ. And that is finished. Is our time on this earth, is the existence of this earth, is the new creation finished? No. That's what we mean when we talk about the second coming. That's about what we mean when we talk about what the scripture says uh, in terms of the recreation of, of all things. So law is not contrary to and it does not replace the promise. It is there to help lead us to the promise. The great escape. And I could call it something other than that, but the great escape, because we're escaping from the law, we're escaping from imprisonment to sin, we're escaping unto Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Verses 22 to 25, there are three parallel statements. Verse 22, the reality, law imprisoned all who were guilty of sin. The purpose, to bring the promise to all who would believe and come to Christ in faith. Verse 23, it speaks of the reality we were all captive to the law. We were all held prisoner by the law. Purpose? To keep us until faith released us. You might think of Peter when he was in prison and the angel came he, had, he was chained to soldiers, two soldiers who were sleeping beside him. And when the time came, he was released and he went out. Well, that's a picture of what has happened to us in Christ because we have been released. Verse 24, the reality law was given as a guardian to teach all mankind about sin and the reality of sin. Anyone who says I'm not a sinner is either a liar or gravely mistaken. We need to know of our sin. And the purpose in that is that we might know that we can be justified by faith because we can never sufficiently pay for our sin. Something has to happen outside of ourselves. And it has upon the cross. And by faith, we are justified. So the great coming of age, verse 25, and that's the other thing we could call it, the great escape or the great coming of age. Faith has come. The guardian is no longer needed. You see, law was a guardian, and you only need a guardian until you come of age. We have come of age in Christ and the guardian's function has changed. Now we have a new reality. Verses 26 to 29. 26. You are all sons of God through faith. Not just Israel. Not just physical descendants of Abraham. You are all sons of God through faith. 27. As many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus. Whoa. Is this baptismal regeneration? Does that mean that you have to have water touching your head to be saved? Well, you know better. You better know better. If you don't know better, talk to me afterwards. Because you've got a problem. It's not water baptism. Water baptism is fine. Water baptism is important. But it is not the baptism by which we come to Christ. You are all sons of God, as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus. And how are we baptized? By the Spirit of God. By the regeneration that comes when God's Spirit enters into our hearts and lives. And at that point, our lives will change. Quite apart from anything you're trying to, am well, now I'm going to try to be better because I've come to faith in Christ. Well, you should. That's okay to make your best efforts. But when the Spirit comes into your life, your life is going to change because He's going to do a lot of it. <laughs> praise God! I praise God for that because He's done a lot of it in my life, and I saw Him do it. Uh, once in a while, you know, I think I've probably told you this before. I've been here enough times. I. Uh, you know, we get to be uh, my age, you say the same things over and over again. Just not all bad, because we learn by repetition. But when I came to Christ, I did not know what it meant to ask to be a Christian. I asked. I said, Lord, I want to be a Christian. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know the scripture. But all of a sudden, I went from being very foul-mouthed teenager to no longer doing that. I didn't set out to not do that. Things just changed. Because when you ask God into your life, He comes. When you ask the Spirit into your life, He comes. And He does things in your life. Baptism in the Spirit is what is meant. You have put on Christ as you are baptized in the Spirit. So Romans chapter 6, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. This is, as we say in this world, a done deal. Or as the Westminster Confession says, an act of God. Our salvation is a done deal, an act of God. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Ephesians chapter 4, 22 and 23, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Sometimes I've come into a pulpit with a dirty old jacket with all kinds of stuff on it and had a nice one set aside somewhere so nobody would see it and talked about this passage and then take off the old one. And put on the nice new one. Because that's the kind of thing that's being said. Put off the old self. And put on the new self. Which is being renewed after the image of God. Do you remember in Genesis that it says we are created in the image of God? And what is the image of God? You go to Ephesians or Colossians, you'll find it. Merciful, kind, gentle, caring. All of these things and more are listed in those passages. And they're listed in relationship to the image of God. That's what we're to be putting on. Consciously doing it and by the Spirit's help doing it. So verse 28, there's a list given. There is neither Jew nor Greek. And Greek here means anybody that isn't Jewish. You know, you could be Armenian and you'd be Greek. They might not agree with that today in Armenia, but um, from the standpoint of the scripture use of the word, there's no Jew, there's no non-Jew, neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. The slave is just as saved as the free man. There is neither male nor female. It's not a gender issue. The ladies in this congregation are just as saved as the men. Aren't you glad, ladies? (laughs) That's a good thing. And vice versa. And finally he says, if you are Christ, that's the only condition. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, sons of God. And then you are heirs according to the promise. That's the final reality. I was an heir of my parents and to some extent of my wife's parents, of course, because we were together. And I inherited certain amounts of money and paintings and all kinds of, you know, furniture, stuff like that. Which is all very nice, but not terribly important, but nice. But I am an heir of the promise of God that there will be a better creation, a better land, a better place that this is coming and that I'm part of it because I am a son of God and I'm not just the heir of Kenneth Dupie, my father, or Daddy Warner as we called him, my mother's, my wife's, my mother's, my wife's, she's the mother of my children, uh, my (laughs) wife's uh, father. But I'm an heir of God. So remember these things. First, you are, are Abraham's heirs. Salvation is by promise and not by law. It's a done deal, an act of God. The law exists to show us our guilt and need, but to lead us to Christ and to give us a means of thanksgiving because we still follow the law in obedience to Christ and thanksgiving to all he's done for us. Not because it gets anything for us, but because we love him and want to obey him. And you know, if you're a father, and I speak as a father now, but mothers, you can have the same idea. If you're a father, if your son obeys simply because he wants to please you, that's a wonderful thing. Better than if he obeys just because it's the right thing to do. And he should do that, too. But the law exists now so that we can obey because we love God and we are his sons and the promise is yet to come. Let's pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, I praise you, Father. I praise you for all that you have done for us, for the wonderful gifts, the wonderful love that you have just poured out upon us. And I praise you, Father, that by your grace we are Abraham's heirs, joint heirs with Christ and his brothers and sisters. Be with us and help us to live as those who are his brothers and sisters and part of his body. In Christ's name, amen.